Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Turkey. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Catherine Lomas makes a fifth appearance on the show. Dr. Lomas has been on the show four times in the past as part of a series that the podcast has been running on the previous Punic Wars. Here are the previous episodes with dates so that they're flagged. Dr. Lomas covered the first Punic War on May 6, 2021. These are all 2021 dates. The podcast then did an interesting publishing exercise for the next two episodes in the series where it covered the interregnum, one from Carthage's side and Rome's side for the other one, the interregnum being in between the first and second wars. So on June 20th, the show covered Carthage after the first Punic War with Dr. Lomas. Then on July 5th, the show covered Rome after the first Punic War. Then on July 28th, Dr. Lomas came back on the show and we covered what scholars know about the Second Punic War. Today, Dr. Lomas is back on the show and we're going to speak about Carthage after the Second Punic War, so the interregnum between the Second and Third Wars. Dr. Lomas is an honorary research fellow at Durham University based in the UK. She's written many publications, including authoring these two books. She's author of The Rise of Rome, From the Iron Age to the Punic Wars, that was published by Harvard University Press in North America and Profile Books in the UK. And she's author of Rome in the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy. And that was published by Routledge. And Dr. Lomas joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Hi, it's good to be back. Always good to connect with you, Catherine. You too. Okay, so that we get to the period that we're speaking about today, can you summarize why the Second Punic War started and how it ended? Okay, uh, well, the Second Punic War is, is, is probably the most famous of the three. It's, it's the one where, where Hannibal invades Italy. Um, and the, the, the cause was a territorial dispute in, Spain, in northern Spain between uh, Rome, um, which was wanting to establish an influence in that area, and Hannibal, who was... Um, Basically, Carthaginian governor of Spain and, and, and trying to trying to move north, um, and the basic cause was that uh, an infringement of what was known as the Ebro Treaty, which established the River Ebro as the the um, boundary between the two areas, um, uh, and um, it, it, the war broke out when Hannibal besieged a city which was uh, south of the river, but the city appealed to Rome for help, and Rome offered it, and. Um, uh, in contravention of the treaty, and that, that obviously upset Carthage. Um, uh, and Hannibal then went on to, to sack Saguntum. Um, but it, it was mainly notable for Hannibal's lightning march over the Alps and the fact that the war was mainly fought in Italy. Um, Hannibal's strategy was really to try and destroy the alliance between Rome and the other Italian states, which was the basis of Roman control of Italy, um, and to try and take on Rome in its own backyard, as it were. Um, but that ultimately failed, uh, as we discussed in the, the previous episode, uh, because uh, Hannibal uh, misjudged quite a lot about, about the situation in Italy and the relationship between Rome and his, its allies. And he initially had some success in unpicking the alliance, but it, it, it unraveled quite quickly. Um, and by 205 uh, uh, BC, Hannibal was really in retreat uh, and getting pushed back right into the toe of Calabria. Um, he's lost most of the allies that he managed to unstitch from Rome, and Rome is really on the advance again. Um, uh, but then from uh, 204, um, the centre of the war really transfers to Africa, 
um, the Roman general Scipio Africanus, who's the, the big hero, one of the big heroes of, of the war because he's the man who conquered Spain for Rome, um, persuades the Senate to let him let him invade Africa in 204 BC. And his strategy there is to build alliances with neighboring tribes, uh, which uh, really successfully isolates Carthage from its, its allies in Numidia. Um, what happens in 203 is that Carthage tries to make peace, but the Senate rejects this, uh, and probably egged on by Scipio for his own personal ambitions. And Hannibal is finally recalled from Italy to, to defend uh, the, the Carthaginian territories in Africa. Um, uh, but uh, that uh, comes unstuck uh, very badly because uh, Scipio uh, fights a pitched battle at uh, the Battle of Zama in 202, uh, and that's a very decisive victory for Rome. Um, so that's the point at which really we, we come to the end of the, the Second Punic War. Uh, Carthage is forced to sue for peace, and in fact is, is forced to un accept a, an unconditional surrender in 201. Um, so it has quite a, quite harsh terms of it and conditions imposed on it by Rome as part of the, the, the winding up of the war. Um, the basic terms are that it's deprived of its fleet, uh, which is a big blow because it's obviously, its reputation is as a big naval power. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, it loses part of its territory. Um, and it also, uh, and as I said, Scipio has unstitched quite a lot of its diplomatic relationships. So Numidia, which has previously been the Carthaginian ally, suddenly peels off. Um, uh, and it also loses the right to make war without Roman permission. So it, it really loses, loses control of its own military and foreign policy. Uh, plus it has to give host hostages from some of the leading families and, and pay uh, a war indemnity. Um, and it also has obviously has lost its all the last of its overseas holdings. Um, it lost control of Sicily um, in the end of, at the end of the First Punic War, um, Sardinia and Corsica, where it also had uh, significant interests, uh, were taken away from it soon after. Um, and the empire that it built up in Spain, really to, to try to try and compensate for that loss, uh, has now gone because. Um, as well as fighting a war, fighting war against Hannibal in in Italy, uh, Rome has been fighting a parallel war under the two under Scipio Africanus and his brother in Spain, and and they've managed to conquer the whole of Spain. So that that then becomes um, two Roman two, two, two Roman provinces rather than a, a Carthaginian uh, area. So so Car Carthage has really lost all its overseas territories, um, but it 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 also has quite a lot of constraints on its foreign policy, its military policy, its you know, it's it's control of the seas, so it's lost a lot of a lot a lot a lot of the things which were basically his, you know, if you like, the, the Carthaginian USP as a naval power and a, a military power in the Western Mediterranean. At the end of the war, then what would Carthage's geographic demarcation have been? Um, well, it's basically paired back to Carthage's own territory, uh, plus a small number of its allies in in, um, in in northern Africa or its dependent territories, places like Utica um, and Hippacra. Um, it still controls part of Libya, we think, uh, although it's not entirely clear what happens to the Libyans. Uh, but um, Numidia, uh, which was never part of Carthaginian territory, it was always an independent ally, um, that breaks away. Uh, and becomes a, uh, it, it starts to lean very heavily towards Rome. Um, 
And one of the game changers in this in, in the period we're going to be talking about is that uh, the king of, of New Media at this stage, Masinissa, uh, is very dynamic and he sees this as a huge opportunity for New Media um, and starts cultivating Rome rather than Carthage and, and trying to build up his power at the expense of Carthage. Um, so this is the point where you really have a sort of new power on the block in North Africa, which is, is Numidia. And in this period that we're speaking about today, and, and to make sure that's in the episode, we're speaking about 201 to 149 BCE. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, um, yeah. The point, the point at which the third war breaks out is 149. So that, that's basically the, the, the period, the interwar period, if you like. What are the main sources that scholars rely on to understand this period that we're speaking about today? Ah, right. Well, the, 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 the sources are, are, are a bit of a problem for this era, uh, because at this point they start becoming really quite fragmentary. Um, and, but they're also quite intriguing, because um, we have uh, an account by the Greek historian Polybius, uh, who was writing pretty, pretty nearly an eyewitness account of, of, of this period, um, and Polybius was the, uh, the son of a Greek, uh, one of the, the a Greek leader uh, who had come to Rome as a, as a hostage because uh, Rome was fighting a war in Greece as well uh, for his uh, um, state's good behaviour. Um, and he uh, became a, a, a guest um, and ultimately a personal friend of the, of, the, of the Scipio family, who were the big players on, on the Roman side in this period. Um, so he was actually an eyewitness of the Third, Third Punic War, um, and his history is really, you know, his, his, his pitch is that he's trying to uh, write a history of Rome uh, to explain Rome to the Greek world because he becomes very pro-Roman. Um, and because he, he, he accompanies uh, uh, Scipio Milianus, uh, the grandson of Scipio Africanus, the victor of Zana, Zama, uh, to uh, Carthage uh, during the Third War, uh, he's got an eyewitness account. Uh, the downside is that uh, his uh, what, what the surviving version of his his, his account is incomplete. Um, so we have we have quite a lot of it. It's it's quite a substantial account, but it's not complete, and a lot of it is compiled from fragments quoted by other authors. Um, so that, 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 that's that's a shame because we have we have an excellent source, but it, but, but it's not 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 doesn't fully survive. Um, the other source we have for some of this period is Livy, who was obviously writing quite a bit later in the Augustan period. Um, uh, but again, we run out of Livy uh, sometime in the late 160s. Uh, uh, we have a certain amount of information about what he said because, I mean, Livy's history is huge. I mean, he doesn't write short. Uh, uh, so in antiquity, somebody came up with the idea of writing a, an abridged version of it. Um, uh, called the epitome, and then somebody else at some point in later antiquity uh, decided that it was going to compile. He was going to compile a summary of Livy's books, the so-called Periochi, which is basically a table, of, a short table of contents. They're only about a short paragraph long. Um, so, for most of the later part of this period, all we have from Livy is the, these summaries. So we can we can tell a little bit about what he said, but not 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 a huge amount. And the, the only real, really full account we have is that of Appian, who's writing much, much later, second century AD. Um, uh, and that is complete, but it's not fully reliable because obviously he's writing at a great distance in time. 
and he's relying on you know, third party sources and some of what he says and how he synthesizes those is um, not you know entirely plausible so we, we're having to sort of pick between um, you know various sources which are, are, are all really intriguing but but don't always add up to a, to a coherent account. Okay so we're chatting about 52 years in this period how do you want to handle the conversation today you want to handle it thematically or chronologically? Um, it would work either way, I think. Uh, I mean, one thing that might be worth saying a little bit about, first of, first of all, is the impact of the peace settlement on Carthage, and that then maybe moving on to what happened politically in Carthage um, and um, uh, really how Carthage, then how Carthage, maybe, maybe something on how Carthage recovered economically, because it does seem to have bounced back reasonably quickly. Um, I mean, one intriguing thing about this is that everyone thinks Hannibal, you know, must have come to a, you know, his career must have hit a, hit, hit the end um, after Zama. But in fact, he has quite a quite an intriguing and distinguished post-war career. So, you know, it's worth saying something about him and what he got up to as well, because he's he's still very much part of the story from the Carthaginian side of things. Um, I mean, if that you think that would work. Yes, sounds good, Catherine. So, do you want to start with? Um... The, you said the, the 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 treaty was the the most logical place st to start with to expand on that. Uh, okay. Uh, well, as I said, the the basic point was that Rome was wanting to take away part of Carthage's military capability, parts of its territory, and and also a lot of its freedom of action in military and foreign policy terms. Um, and that has quite a big impact on Carthage because, uh, firstly, it leaves Carthage with no, with no naval power. Um, and as we've explored in, in earlier episodes, naval power is very central to, to, what, to what Carthage is all about. Um, it doesn't have the automatic right to defend itself, which, which is why, why, the, why the Numidians become such a problem, because um, obviously if you've got an expansionist new power right on your border, then you know, having to ask somebody else's permission if, you, if they attack you and you need to, need to defend yourself is a, is a bit of a problem. Um, and of course, war reparations pose a, a fairly hefty financial burden. And of course, you've got you've got all the the, the the damage to Carthaginian territory. So you know you've got agricultural disruption as well. Um, so basically, it's in, in many ways it's rather similar to the Lutetian Treaty that ends the First Punic War in 241. But the terms are significantly harsher. Um, and I think what's going on here is that maybe Rome has learned, learned the lessons of the 230s and 220s uh, by trying to stop Carthage from bouncing back in the same way. Um, because one of the corollaries of losing so much territory and therefore the income from it uh, means that whereas it cleared its Carthage cleared its war debts quite quickly in the after 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 the first war, now it doesn't have those economic resources. Um, Spain was very lucrative for it because it provided mineral resources and also taxes, and it, it's lost all those. Uh, plus. Um, uh, Scipio Africanus went went on the rampage um, before the Zama campaign uh, and uh, laid waste to a lot of the a lot a lot of the agricultural land in in Africa. So at this point, Carthage is really, really in quite a bad way economically. Um, so you know, in some ways, Rome was actually sort of being quite clever about 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 how it set up this peace treaty. It means that Carthage is. Sort of militarily very constrained, but it's also sort of economically under, under quite a bit of pressure. So, what's happening in Carthage then after the Second War in terms of politics? 
Well, th this is where it gets quite quite complicated, part, partly because we don't really know, know enough about the internal politics of Carthage anyway, and partly because what we do know obviously comes from Greek and Roman sources rather than from in, uh, internal Carthaginian sources. Um, but what seems to have happened is that um, the um, Barkid faction, the, the ones led by Hannibal's family, the Barkers, uh, are now obviously on the back foot because he's not prevailed in this war. Um, and the traditional oligarchy, uh, based on a faction led by Hanno the Great and his successors, um, Hanno the Great still it seems to have been around still until about 202, uh, is starting to reassert itself. Um, and th this links back to some of what we talked about um, two episodes ago with, when we were talking about the, um, the gap between the First and the Second War. Um, the same sort of political issues that we have then, which is a sort of factional struggle between the, the sort of more traditional oligarchic faction led by Hanno the Great and the, the Barker faction, really, really comes to the fore again. Um, Livy says something slightly intriguing, uh, which is that what he calls the order of the judges, uh, although he doesn't define what he means by that, uh, uh, has now got control. Um, and a lot of people think that what this might be is what we, is something that we know from other sources as the court of 104. Um, uh, the Greek philosopher Aristotle says that it's the highest authority in Carthage, but inconveniently, he doesn't actually tell us what that means in practical terms. Um, but it, see, it seems to have, over, have, have had oversight over military and foreign policy and, and maybe control of the generals. So, that, you know, if you, if, if Carthage's generals underperformed, they, they get hauled in front of this court and punished. Um, uh, but it does seem to have, in, in the fourth century, it does, uh, and from the fourth century onwards, it does really seem to have been associated with the sort of quite traditional oligarchic faction in Carthage. Um, uh, and it has a reputation of being intolerant, but also not really terribly competent. Um, and one of the problems in the immediate aftermath of the war is that um, the faction, you know, which is associated with this body, uh, is, has reasserted itself, and it causes a huge breakdown of relationships with the, re the relationship with Numidia, which was pre previously a Carthaginian ally, um, and it also lost its own people because uh, it tried to pay off the war indemnity by hiking up taxes, and of course that made it hugely unpopular. So, so what you've got at this stage is um, a, a, a sort of the sort of conservative, small c, um, you know, traditional oligarchic faction, you know, making itself vastly unpopular by making um, decisions which which are going to put a lot of financial burden on the people who are already quite suffering, quite a lot. Um, I mean, you can you can get a get a sense of perhaps what the the depths of the economic um, problems by um, uh, well, there are two things. One is. Uh, one, one is that there's an anecdote about Hannibal using his army as agricultural labour uh, to try and replace things like olives, olive groves, which have been hacked down. Um, so, I mean, if you're having to use your army as, as sort of field labour, your agriculture is not in a great way. Uh, and also uh, the coins that were paid out in the first instalment of the war indemnity in 199 uh, seem to have contained about 25% of coins with adulterated silver, so it's all, they're obviously short on precious metal. Um, so you know, against that background, you know, hiking up taxes and, and trying to trying to put economic pressure on a population that's already struggling isn't isn't really 
that much of a bright idea. Is the coins that you referenced that had si silver, was that a case where um, they they were supposed to pay pay in gold and they pay and pay, they pay 25% in in silver and is it known if they they disclose that to to Rome the the different type of metal in advance no it's 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 not so much about 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 uh, substituting gold coinage for silver coinage um it's that the silver that they were using for, to make the coinage was debased so it didn't have the right proportion of silver actually in the coins um Basically, the the coin the the um their their the resource of precious metal was so low that they weren't that they were having having to pad out the coinage with base metal, um and of course in the ancient world the you know the value of a coin is very much linked to the the quantity of, of precious metal that's in there. So, you know if if you if you start getting adulterated coinage with with base metal added to to eke out silver or whatever, then that 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 that's really a sign of economic stress. Okay. So the composition of the so it's, it's, it's about the composition of, of what the coinage is being made of, um, which um, probably has to do with loss of loss of the loss of mineral resources from Spain because that that's obviously where they get a lot of their, their metal resources from, and that's that's no longer available. What's known about Hannibal, what he was doing after the Second Punic War while he was still in the state of Carthage? Right. Well, this is this is this is why it was really, you know, it was really a bit of a silly decision for the um, uh, the, the Hanno faction to start, um, you know, trying to trying to pressurize the people um, economically because Hannibal is still an active politician, um, and uh, the result of this unpopular decision to start raising taxes was that um, Hannibal returns to power. Um, I mean, he's a very accomplished statesman as well as a leading general, so he, he does have quite a long and distinguished career after the Battle of Zama, both in Carthage and, and elsewhere, which is something I can talk about later if you want me to. Um, but we know that by 196 or thereabouts, we don't have an exact date, he has been elected as Sufit, which is the chief magistrate, um, and that seems to be uh, a result of, this, of, of a popular backlash against these tax risers. And pretty much the first thing he does is introduce a series of political and financial reforms. Um, we again, we we know frustrating detail about this, but it seems to have involved um, trying to stop um, people kind of hogging political office by placing restrictions on how many times that you can hold a a, a particular judicial office. Uh, he launches an anti-corruption drive, which is obviously aimed at the uh, court of 104. Um, and he manages to stabilize public finances, uh, partly by have, instituting these anti-corruption measures to stop people skimming money off. And the extent to which the, there must have been a problem is illustrated by the fact that um, by stabilizing the, the public finances and, and stopping corruption, uh, he manages to save enough money, money to cancel the tax rises. Um, he also invests in public buildings um, there's something, there's an area of Carthage known as the Hannibal Quarter, which seems to, seems to have been rebuilt in this period. There's, there's archaeological evidence for that. Um, uh, and he now seems to have been able to, to start paying the next installments of the war indemnities for Rome without, without too much strain. Uh, so Hannibal is very much a, a reforming politician at, at, at this stage, um, or as far as we can tell. Um, and he seems to be Sort of homing in on trying to stabilize the economy and, and public finances. 
and I'd also to rebuild parts of the city. And in this, in this period, like, what do scholars rely on to know about some of the political activity that Hannibal would have been up to in Carthage? Because you mentioned that um, there's no uh, writers fr from Carthage's side who is writing in this period. Uh, well, this is this is the, this is the effect effectively the problem because um, you know we have Livy, we have Polybius, we have Appian, uh, but we don't have a you know they are all external sources. So one one of the things that historians have to keep asking themselves in this situation, um, and it, it's one that I, I find myself in a lot because um, as you probably know, my my main research is on um, the sort of non-Roman bits of Italy, where you're, you're you're constantly looking at societies from the standpoint of Greeks and Romans, but not from themselves. Um, and you constantly have to have to sort of start asking yourself, well, you know, does this sound plausible in terms of whatever else we know about Carthage? Does it match with things like archaeological evidence or inscriptions? Um, you know, if um, you know, if, if a Greek or Roman source sort of uses a particular term, uh, is that them sort of looking at Carthage and saying, oh, well, that must be like one of our institutions, so we'll call it that instead. Uh, so you're constantly having to read between the lines. Uh, and quite a good example of that, going back to what I said about the court of 104, is that we know a little bit about this from Aristotle, because he says uh, that it's the highest authority in the land. Um, but what he compares it to is the Ephors in Sparta. Uh, who have um, the power to scrutinize the kings of Sparta and what they do um, militarily. Um, so that's why we think that they might it might have had some sort of oversight of foreign and military policy or, or maybe some sort of judicial authority over generals. Uh, but at the same time, you know Carthage and Sparta are such different societies that you know you can't really take that in too much detail. Um, you know so it, it is very much a case of sort of taking, sort of what statements by people like Polybius and Livy and then looking at them and saying, well, you know, does that sound plausible in a, in a, in a, in a Carthaginian context or, or are they sort of, you know, looking at Carthage and seeing things in their own terms? Okay. Were there any military conflicts between Numidia and Carthage in this period? Okay. Um, well, this is... Uh, there's a sort of constant niggling tension between Numidia and Carthage in this period, uh, because um, obviously Massinissa, the, the king of Numidia, is, is, sees this as a huge opportunity for Numidia, and he seems to have been quite keen to, ex ex to expand Numidian territory at the expense of Carthage between 201 and 149, uh, but a lot of the details aren't particularly clear. Um, and one of the difficulties of Carthage is, of course, that it's not allowed to, to, work, to actually wage war without Roman permission. So that leaves it very vulnerable. Uh, so if Massinissa starts sort of nibbling at the edges of, uh, of Carthaginian territory, then that means that uh, instead of just sort of going to war and pushing him back, uh, Carthage has to send a delegation to Rome and say, you know, Massinissa is misbehaving, can we go and fight him? Or, you know, will you send people to out to mediate? Um, um, so it, it's very constrained in that way. Um, and the other problem is that our three main sources, Livy, Polybius and Appian, are often quite contradictory and confused over events and dates and motivation. Um, but that, the, the basic bottom line of the narrative is, is that Massinissa is, is, is ambitious and has his eye on Carthaginian territory. He 
tries claiming parts of Libya that were parts of Libya, which was historically um, a Carthaginian protectorate, uh, are actually parts of, of Numidian ancestral lands. And we know that there are territorial disputes in the 190s, and then again in 182, uh, and then again in 174 to two, and then again in, one, in the mid one in the late 150s. Um, the problem is that some of the details actually replicate themselves. So are, are they are these separate conflicts, or are or are, or are the sources conflict, you know, co conflating several different ones um, and, and creating sort of replicas of of, of each conflict? Uh, and that's that's the real problem. We don't we don't know we don't know whether these are actually separate conflicts or, or whether whether it's some of these are sources misstating things. Um, we know that in 193 the problem seems to have been real because. Um, Scipio is, is himself led an embassy to, to mediate the dispute between the two. Uh, and that, that gives you a, a, an indication of the scale of the problem, that, that Carthage can't just go and sort of defend its borders. It has to send an envoy to Rome and say, please, can you send mediators or, or give us permission to fight? Um, uh, so one of the things which involves frequent contact with, with Rome is um, you know, border disputes with, with Numidia. Um, uh, but Rome isn't always keen to be involved, um, partly because it's already involved, quite heavily committed in wars in the Eastern Mediterranean uh, with Macedon and, uh, and Illyria and, and, and Greece, and also with Antiochus of Syria. Uh, so Rome blows hot and cold over this, whether it, whether it wants to actually be involved. Um, for instance, in the 160s, uh, Massinissa seems to have staged quite a major land grab. Uh, and Carthage loses control of the region around Emporia and Leptis Magna. Um, and that is again referred to Rome, uh, but the Senate upholds that. Um, and then in the late 150s, it seems to have lost another big slice of, of its territory in the same way. Massinissa simply lays claim, and, and Carthage can't fight for it back because of the terms of the treaty. So, you know, it's reliant on whether the, the Senate will. You know, tell Massinissa to back off or, or, or support the Carthaginian claim, or would it go the other way? Um, and uh, there's also a, a very obscure period of Carthaginian politics at, at this stage, um, which is very, very, which is very confused because all our three sources say different and slightly confusing things about them. Uh, but it seems to have uh, splintered into uh, various not very coherent factions. Um, one of which is named the pro-Massinissa faction, which is very puzzling because why on earth would anyone in Carthage support Massinissa, who was trying to demolish parts of Carthaginian territory? Uh, so there's a lot of sort of un unclarity about, firstly, about how many co territorial conflicts there were, and say, secondly, about what the political background in Carthage was. Uh, but what we do know is that uh, up until 149, Carthage seems to have been quite sort of scrupulous about sending envoys to Rome and getting getting Rome to send envoys to sort things out rather than just going to war. Um, so it's 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 it, it's a very very confusing issue. Uh, and we we also th uh, have some evidence that uh, Massinissa and his son Galassa uh, are actually starting to start try actively trying to try to stir. Uh, matters between Rome and Carthage because there are various points where the Numidians get the Numidians send an embassy to the Senate and say, uh, you know, make basically make allegations that Carthage is breaking the treaty by stockpiling weapons or trying to rebuild a fleet. 
um, and basically trying to get the Romans to come down heavily on Carthage by, by making allegations against them. Um, so it's not it's not just about um, in this period the, the problem with Numidia is it isn't isn't just uh, just about um, you know military conflict. A lot of it is about um, you know political horse trading and um, you know diplomatic negotiations. Uh, but it does seem to have been a running problem throughout this period from the one nineties to uh, the late one fifties. Um, you know, and Carthage seems to have actually lost quite a lot of territory in that way because precisely because New Media knows that it can't just wheel out its army and defend itself. Sounds like there were many geopolitical dynamics at play in this period. Yeah, it is incredibly complicated. So when did Hannibal leave Carthage and why did he leave? Um, well, he's, uh, he's, uh, his, Departure seems to have been linked with this anti-corruption drive that he had, um, because um, there there gets to be a point where um, allegations are made in Rome uh, that Hannibal has been negotiating with Antiochus III, the king of Syria, who's at war with Rome, uh, and Rome takes the opportunity to send an embassy to Carthage and say, you know, Hannibal, you know, is negotiating with our enemies. This is a breach of treaty. Please hand him over. Um, and at that point, um, Hannibal was so unpopular with certain of the certain members of the traditional Carthaginian elite, the, the Hanno faction, as as was, and Hanno himself was dead by this stage, uh, that he doesn't actually trust them, not 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 to do what Rome asks and hand him over. Uh, so at that point, he goes into into voluntary exile. Um, so in a sense, he, he leaves voluntarily, but it's be, it's be, it's because his political enemies uh, are making trouble for him and uh, he can't trust them to defend him against these Roman allegations. Um, and the background to that is that it's quite possible that these allegations were absolutely totally true, uh, because uh, when Hannibal goes into voluntary exile, he uh, eventually winds up in Syria, uh, where he actually becomes a leading advisor to, to Antiochus, um, and they hatch various plans against aimed at, at um, uh, upsetting Rome, um, they plan. They seem to have planned to oust the pro-Roman government of Carthage at one point. Um, there are various plans to reinvade Italy, uh, and throughout the 190s and, and 180s, you, you get periodic sort of scares in Italy uh, about you know Hannibal's coming to invade. You know, help. You know, we've got to put up our coastal defences. Um, uh, which so basically, the whole of Italy is quite sensitive, sensitive about the idea of Hannibal staging a reinvasion. Uh, but also, there's this sort of odd little lips of evidence that suggests that you know that wasn't entirely off the cards because Hannibal would have really quite liked to do it. Um, but we also know that he he becomes, as well as the leading advisor to Antiochus, he becomes the commander of Antiochus's navy um, uh, during a, a war between um, Antiochus and a coalition between Rhodes and Rome. Um, and Antiochus is defeated at, at, in, in 190 at the Battle of Mionessus. Um, and then shortly after that, in the following year, Rome forces Antiochus to make peace with them. Uh, and at that, at that point, Hannibal realizes that Antiochus's course isn't, isn't safe for him anymore. So he takes off to Bithynia, which is on the south coast of the Black Sea. Um, and Rome at this stage is obviously quite keen to get rid of Hannibal because they pressure Prusias, the king of Bithynia, to surrender him. Uh, but in fact, he dies um, before that can happen. Uh, 
we don't have an, an exact date. It's probably somewhere between 183 and 181. Uh, and it's also unclear why he died. Um, there's one late source, the Greek geographer Pausanias, who says that it, he died of natural causes, uh, that he cut himself and the wound turned septic. Uh, but there are more dramatic accounts, uh, which Appian, Appian says that he was poisoned by King Prusias because he wanted to get rid of this, you know, embarrassing, politically embarrassing person that he'd, he'd acquired. Um, and Livy and, Plut and the biographer Plutarch say that um, he'd actually committed suicide to avoid being, uh, to avoid being handed over. Um, so he, he eventually dies by some form of poisoning, whether you know, sort of voluntarily, accidentally, or or um, uh, or, or murder, um, in the at some point in the late one eighties. Uh, but he does seem to have had this quite dynamic and effective career, both in Card in, in Carthage and, and elsewhere in the, in the post war period. This is uh, an appropriate uh, place to mention another episode that occurred on the show for everyone listening. Dr. Eve McDonald of Cardiff University has been on the show in the past a couple times. And the last episode that with Dr. McDonald was on what scholars know about Hannibal's life. So if anybody wants to listen to an entire episode on Hannibal, that episode is findable as well online or the podcast app that you're using to syndicate and receive the show. Do you want to, at this point, Catherine, cover what's known about the later part of this period? Okay. Um, well, but, what, one of the things that I think might be worth a point might be worth mentioning is that by by this stage, Carthage is actually starting to to to, to recover quite well economically. Um, uh, Polybius says that the countryside is very prosperous again. Uh, again, it gets really prosperous, very prosperous again, really quite quickly. Um, they're able to Carthage is able to ship lots of grain to Rome. Uh, he offers to pay the remainder of the war indemnity as a lump sum um, to help Rome out for this war against Antiochus. Uh, and we also have, have evidence that trade is quite healthy because we find uh, Carthaginian ceramics and coins elsewhere in the Western Mediterranean state, and also quite a lot of Italian, mainly Campanian ceramics in Carthage itself. Um, and in fact, the Roman dramatist Plautus, who writes in the uh, uh, the mid Second century writes a writes a comedy, the pointless about about a Punic merchant, uh, which suggests that you know this is a, a well known figure. Um, and also, Carthage is redeveloping its harbour facilities at this date. There's quite a lot of archaeological evidence. Um, plus, Strabo, the Greek geographer, lists the population of this of the city as around about three quarters of a million people. So it's clearly Carthage is clearly not not down on its uppers. It's it's um, you know clearly recovering reasonably well and has very strong contacts with both the Italian and the Greek world. Uh, but at the same time, it's still got this ongoing problem with, um, you know, Massinissa, the fact that it's losing territory, the fact that it can't defend itself, um, and the fact that, um, you know, Rome, you know, really does control its, its external policy. Um, and I think the big question really, you know, once you get towards the sort of later end of this period, the late 160s through to 149, is how far is Rome actively seeking another war with Carthage? Um, because at this point, at this point, we're dealing with a period where the sources are seriously fragmentary. We, we, we're down to the the bare bones sort of table of contents summaries of Livy, um, and um, fragments of Polybius and, and whatever Appian says. Um, and there are two distinct tra traditions, even in the ancient world. Um, 
one which comes through Polybius and Appian, um, and Polybius, as I said, is basically an eyewitness by this stage, um, because he's writing in the middle of the years of the second century, um, reckons that uh, Rome already had decided to go to war again, um, that it really saw Carthage as a rival that had to be got rid of, um, and that it was looking for a pretext of, of, of the war long before 149. Um, because of the earnings about its resurgence. Uh, but there's a different tradition which comes through in Livia, uh, sorry, Livy, uh, is Periochi, uh, which suggests that views in Rome were really quite polarized. There was a sort of Roman political element to this. Um, Cato the Elder, who was one of the leading um, and quite literally elder states from by, by this stage, because he died at a very ripe old age, uh, is said to have been pressing for, for war from at least one. 52 onwards, and possibly, possibly earlier. Um, and there's a, an anecdotal tradition, although, although it's, it doesn't, it only appears in later sources, uh, that every time he was asked for his opinion in the Senate about anything, you know, no matter what, he, 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 he always finished with the, the phrase, Delendres Cartago, you know, furthermore, my, my opinion is that Carthage ought to be destroyed. Um, so, you know, he, he he has this reputation in the Roman sources of be, being a sort of virulently anti-Carthage and, and thinking that it's leaving, you know, it's storing up problems for the future to leave Carthage still there. Um, and it, given that Carthage seems to have bounced back economically really quite successfully, you can kind of see why he might have thought that. Um, but at the same time, the Scipio faction, um, ironically, given that the Scipios were, were instrumental in, in destroying, actually literally destroying Carthage twice, uh, are, are actually against that. Uh, um, there's a politician called Scipio Nasica um, who advises caution. Um, and ironically, he's, a cousin, he's the cousin of Scipio Aemilianus, the grandson of Africanus, the victor of Zama, uh, um, who is in charge of prosecuting, uh, pursuing the, the, the Punic War. Um, it's uh, Aemilianus who's very much in charge of the final destruction of Carthage. Uh, so there's a slight irony there, but at the same time, there does seem to be evidence of a, of a, of a split within the, the senatorial ranks. Um, but one thing which is really clear is that the Senate, you know, when, when things happen, you know, sort of Massinissa starts pestering, making a pest of himself or, you know, Carthage has a dispute with somebody, um, the Senate tends to either not react or it just sends diplomatic mediation. Um, I mean, the fact that he's that the Senate tends to to, to condone and, and confirm Massinissa's land grabs suggests that it's that Rome is leading very much more towards him than to Carthage in the 150s and 160s. Uh, but at the same time, it's very noticeable that you know the Senate doesn't sort of go all out for war in this period. So, you know, my, my feeling is that you know there isn't a clear move towards wanting a third war with Carthage at this date as a place to potentially end the conversation today, Catherine, can you cover what's known about the start of the third war? Who start, what, whose scholars believe started that war? And if scholars believe that Rome violated the treaty with Carthage at all in some of these events that you've been describing? Uh, yeah, I mean, the short answer to that is that the, the background is basically this trouble with Massinissa, which had been rumbling away for, for most of the uh, most of it for several decades. 
because we know we know that even before you get down to 150 to 149, which is when the war breaks out again, uh, Massinissa keeps, you know, not just sort of trying to encroach on Carthaginian territory, but periodically the Numidians send embassies to Rome and try, 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 try and stir up diplomatic trouble for Carthage by alleging that they're doing all sorts of things against the treaty, you know, like building a new fleet. Um, and, and I think the telling thing is that Rome doesn't really take much notice of, of it up to this point. Uh, but in um, 150 to 49, uh, uh, another conflict between Carthage and Massinissa breaks out. Um, and Massinissa lays siege to another town in Carthaginian territory. Um, and Carthage sends a relief force in this case. It does, it does actually send out troops. Um, and that is defeated and massacred. Um, but unfortunately for Carthage, uh, there's a Roman delegation in town led by Scipio Emilianus. Um, and it's visiting, that, that, that embassy is visiting Massinissa when all this happens. Um, and uh, Emilianus again does what Rome's been doing all, to, all, all along and says, you know, would you like me to mediate this conflict and try, try and broker a diplomatic solution? Um, but Carthage in this case refused. Um, you know, it had obviously just been pushed too far by all these incursions uh, by Numidia. Um, uh, so that when the embassy went off home to Rome, it reported to the Senate the tre that the Treaty of 201 had been broken, uh, which it kind of had, but at the same time it, it had been broken under really quite severe provocation. Um, I mean, the interesting question is that why, why has Carthage at this stage, having had this sort of pattern of you know playing by the rules and getting Roman mediators in uh, for you know several decades before this why, why have they suddenly snapped and decided just to sort of send out their army um, and it may be that they felt that you know Massinissa was just encroaching too far uh, it may have been just that they ran out of patience you know, <laughs> you know if, if, you, if you push somebody far hard, hard enough you know that, 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 may, that may happen um, but the real the real problem for, for them this time was that, you know, when they had this um, set to with Massinissa on this occasion, there was a Roman embassy actually in Numidia, um, and because they because Carthage had actually sort of had the offer of Roman mediation and rejected it, um, you know, it, it put them very clearly in the wrong, and it gave Rome the the kind of opportunity that it needed to uh, to go back to war again. And that was the. The pivotal event that started the third war. Yeah, I mean, Car Car Carthage did, try, did actually try to row back on this because it it it, it had it, it it launched a diplomatic offensive of its own, sending lots of delegations to Rome, trying to trying to smooth things over, um, and um, offering all sorts of concessions. Um, uh, but um, you know, by this stage, you know that that's the case of too little and too late. Um, and um, there are all sorts of speculations going right back to Polybius himself about why why Rome, you know, you can see why under pressure from New Media, why why Carthage might have felt that they had to take more positive action. Uh, but the question really is one of the questions about is, you know, why why does Ro why does Rome succumb and go to war at this point? Um, uh, Polybius talks about them being motivated by the breach of the Treaty of Two Hundred One. Um, by long-standing Roman hostility to Carthage. Um, um, 
And he, he also says that in the Greek world, it's why it was widely believed that Romans are just greedy and duplicious by nature. You know, and therefore you can't trust them. Uh, but that that's interesting because you know he's a pro very pro-Roman Greek, uh, but at the same time, you know, he's saying, well, you know, the wider Greek world, you know, they, they, you know, a lot of the Greeks think that Romans are just untrustworthy. Um, you know, so you, you would expect them to do this sort of thing, wouldn't you? Um, so it it seems to be it seems to have been a bit of a mixture because Carthage doesn't seem to be an, an obvious threat uh, to Rome at this point. And in some ways, you can see that Roman interests might have been best served by leaving Carthage and Massinissa to counterbalance each other. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, some of this comes down to the nature of the Roman elite because uh, uh, successful military actions are uh, a great way of accumulating wealth in the ancient world. Um, and also they're a great way of accumulating military rep re reputation. And for a Roman politician with an eye to the next rung up the ladder, um, you know, wealth to fund your next election campaign and to lavish on the people in the way of, you know, largesse, a military reputation to to kind of cement your, you know, your, your reputation as a sort of successful and sub substantial person are, are prerequisites for a political career. Um, plus, Rome is in a gen genuinely expand generally expansionist frame of mind at that point. Um, you know, the wars in the Eastern Mediterranean are starting to come to the conclusion uh, with the sack of Corinth in 146, uh, which established Roman control of Greece. So it may be that there's, there's a sort of wider geopolitical background to this, to, to this, this outbreak as well. Um, but it, it, it's frustratingly difficult to pin down exactly why the Third Punic War happened and why, why it happened when it happened, given that you know, a lot of the problems and, and issues have been rumbling on for several decades before that. You've covered a lot of uh, material on this episode today, Catherine. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. Okay, it's very good to be back. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Lomas wrote, she's author of The Rise of Rome, From the Iron Age to the Punic Wars. And she's also author of Rome in the Western Greeks, 350 BC to AD 200, Conquest and Acculturation in Southern Italy. I'll drop links to these two books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Catherine and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.